Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew, but I do feel like putting you on the spot sort of right off the top. I did some thinking here over the last week or two, and I realized that you've sort of walked me into all these traps where I've revealed embarrassing things about myself over the last few years, you know, peanut butter tacos and on and on and on. And when I think about free agency, I mean, this is the time of year that you actually decide to tune in. You know, the playoffs are kind of like... (laughs) 50 50 on you're into the draft you know but mostly as a precursor to free agency i mean if you're watching i dispute that characterization but i'll let you cook do your thing (laughs) you may or may not tune out for a month and a half during the regular season but you definitely love all-star weekend but (laughs) if we're ranking your priority your power rankings on the nba calendar there's no question it's free agency number one yeah and i want you to just sort of confirm or deny my mental image of you i've got this picture of you like you know, one of those lab rodents that they just like hop up on too much caffeine to sort of see like, can we push the boundaries of how crazy this mouse or this rat can spin around on a wheel? <laughs> yeah. I picture you waking up at like 6.15 a.m. with no alarm and then just checking your Twitter obsessively refreshing over and over again for like <laughs> an 18 hour period, maybe catching a quick cat nap around like 2 a.m and then waking up to do it all again. Can you confirm or deny that? And really, can you just walk us through what your life is like behind the scenes during the free agency period? So what you're imagining, just to be clear, I'm like a mouse in a lab being fed sugar water all day and spinning on my wheel for like 18 hours a day, correct? Yeah, maybe maybe some meth laced into the sugar water. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you're not entirely wrong because to take you through... We're recording this on a Thursday afternoon, and we may have to go back and record like an emergency intro if Kawhi gets traded in a few hours. But um, yeah, I mean, I went to bed at like 2.30 in the morning last night and just naturally woke up at 7.30 this morning, and I've been checking mm. Twitter all day. And so, so you're not far off. I am energized by the chaos here. And I like that you're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum because, first of all, you're back in Portland where literally, like, you, you couldn't have been off the plane for more than a half hour before you were in the middle of a park texting me photos of a beaver that you found in a local park out there. And uh, we just talked about this, and you were like, yeah, I haven't really followed the rumors that closely, so you're going to have to lead us on that front. So it's perfect. I, I like the role reversal for us here. Yeah, well, just to be clear, I went to Beaverton High School. Our mascot was the Beavers. And for probably the first 20 years of my life, I had to listen to people making, you know, sexual jokes about that name. (laughs) And I never had the payoff of actually seeing a real life beaver in public in Beaverton until yesterday. It was almost like, you know, divine intervention by the park gods, this gigantic beaver. I mean, this thing was probably 14 or 15 feet long i don't okay okay (laughs) maybe it was like four feet long but this seemed like a giant beaver just rolling around it was uh it was quite the homecoming gift but i'm glad that i nailed your life behind the scenes so well because now i have a follow-up question for you and i I actually thought i might have been exaggerating when i laid out my blueprint but i pretty much nailed it i'm wondering is there any tweet real or fake that you won't go all in for like in other words like obviously you're not going to be retreating like fake you know news accounts but when you see some like absolutely ludicrous scenario 
you know, just make something up. Okay, KD texted LeBron, who texted Kawhi, who texted Carmelo, and they're all going to team up for like the Charlotte Hornets. <laughs> when when you see stuff like that, your your mind does not ever go to there's no way this is going to happen. Your mind starts with, okay, this is happening. And then you sort of take yourself back from that ledge, right? Like, don't you, aren't you the X-File guy who just wants to believe no matter what it is? Absolutely. Okay. I'm leaning into every conspiracy theory available. And I'm currently trying to find uh, one theory that was sent my way this morning. Um, Yeah. One of my friends in DC sent me, sent me this on Troy Brown. Uh, the Wizards' first-round draft pick this year. Troy Brown wore number zero in college and then chose number six when he got to the Wizards. DeMarcus Mm. Cousins followed him after the draft and liked his Instagram post, and now Marcin Gortat has been traded. Hashtag boogie to DC. That's from Twitter user Taylor Vapopoulos. Listen, man, I am all in on that theory. I think the dots are connected and we all see where it's going. And so that that's the type of note that, yes, I definitely read too much into, but that's part of the fun with this season. Yeah, and let me ask you, this is my third and final question. So after <laughs> you swallow every single one of these conspiracy theories whole, uh-huh. How many like what percentage of the years are you left disappointed versus satisfied? Because I just worry I'm trying to put myself in your mind, you know, this meth sugar water that you're drinking <laughs> and you know just throwing reality out, you know, it's it's difficult for me to process this. But yep. how concerned are you that when all the dust settles it's not going to be as entertaining as the reality that you've created in your mind? Um, I've made peace with that, particularly this year. It feels like things are trending in a predictable direction and all roads lead to the Lakers putting things together with at least LeBron and Paul George and possibly Kawhi on top of that. And, uh, and I feel like it's going to be strangely anticlimactic when, when that actually happens. Um, but I'm still here enjoying the journey, just as you are with your beaver watching out in Oregon. So it's a big week for both of us. I have no complaints from any of this thus far, except that I do feel like I'm kind of being interrogated here and it's making me uncomfortable. Well, welcome to my world. What do I do (laughs) the other 51 weeks out of the year when you're just hammering me for specifics? All right. Well, uh, no... No further ado, let's get to some of these questions about these free agency scenarios. I know some of them were sent in by our amazing listeners to openfloormail at gmail.com, but I know a lot of the other ones are just percolating out there in the rumor sphere, right? Yeah, so I'm curious how closely you have followed the Kawhi Lakers Spurs love triangle this week, which is being narrated by Woj and ESPN I don't know. How do you feel about where things are with them? Because it seems like the 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 Spurs are trying to sort of put the pressure on the Lakers to get a deal done before Friday, and I'm just not sure why the Lakers would feel that pressure. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I'm not necessarily sure it's just the Spurs putting that pressure. I think there's a very real incentive for the Lakers to kind of have this master plan come together simultaneously so that 
they can kind of, you know, pitch this as like, you know, one united front and they just win this summer and it's over. I mean, imagine the splash if they do get that deal done, if they can convince Paul George to come and they can land LeBron James. I mean, that is an atomic bomb on the NBA calendar. And you remember how weird it was when like the Wiggins trade just like didn't happen for like four or five weeks. And I mean, I'm sure you remember this, like the Cavaliers PR people were basically smuggling Wiggins in and out of like uh, (laughs) the, the summer league games and like the Timberwolves, you know, same thing where like he just wouldn't talk to the media and like, is he being traded? Is he not being traded? Uh, you know, it just, it's messy. So, and wasn't that because that was because of a technicality, right? Where they couldn't legally trade him until 30 days after he had signed his contract. Exactly. And so you would just prefer to not have those hangups, right? Like if you're looking to make the biggest possible splash, if you're magic, if you've gone out there and done that, you know, press conference where you're like, if I don't sign anybody, I'm going to quit in two years, wink, wink, wink. And it's like all laid out (laughs) sort of like, okay, these guys have their team ready to rock and they've been waiting for months to sort of unveil it. Yeah, you would want that to go completely smooth. So I guess I do see a little bit of time pressure uh, you know, from the, you know, from the Lakers standpoint, I think also if you're San Antonio, it's just good business. I mean, don't you have to try to build up as much of a market as you can? You have to find ways to, you know, basically strip every asset you can in a deal. And I just don't think this is that complicated of a negotiation, is it? I mean, the Lakers have a pretty clear pile of assets. There's not that many different ways you're going to negotiate. It's like Ingram's got to be included. Uh, you know, obviously you want whatever pick that they can include and you don't want to take back a bad contract if you absolutely don't have to, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like this is some crazy concocted four-team solution. It it seems like it should be pretty straightforward. So I guess I'm not totally into following like every single one of these head fakes because it seems like a pretty simplistic negotiation at its base. Yeah, I think I've just been giving more of a side eye to the general narrative that has dominated things this week. Um, I did like the the Magic Johnson quote was pretty great because the way I was thinking about it is like, because Jim Buss, I believe, made a similar declaration a couple years back. And Jim Buss is the type of guy to make that declaration and guarantee that he's bringing superstars to L.A., without any kind of plan to actually execute. Whereas I feel like Magic is the type of guy who only makes that guarantee if he already knows that a couple guys are already coming this summer. And yeah, so what, what you're saying is Magic's intelligent and Jim Buss isn't. I <laughs> well, yes. couldn't agree more. And a hey, by bit. the way... I'm also Jim- saying that Magic is pretty devious, okay? I think he's he's not really going out on a limb the way he appears to be. Yeah, no question. I mean, the thing about Jim Buss's statement is like when he made that, you know, those big like uh, tickers that they like track the you know, national debt, like in New York City, there's like that that little like number that just like constantly increases, like here's our national debt. And like every second, it just goes up and up and up. Like the Lakers fans were ready to build one of those tickers for Jim Buss as soon as he <laughs> said that, just counting down the days. And I don't even think he made it to the days. But uh, yeah, needless to say, I don't think Le- uh, Magic's a statement here is going to blow up in his face and uh, yeah yeah so well and you mentioned you mentioned the kind of predictable endpoint for all this and i feel like san antonio's only move was to leak the involvement of teams like the sixers and celtics and you know it all came from Woj, who has been leading the way on the spurs side of the reporting for the last month or so with the Kawhi drama and so I just feel like 
it was transparently San Antonio t- trying to like create a market here where there just really doesn't seem to be much of a market. And so if can, I were the Lakers, I, can I argue I think, with it, you on that one though? Yeah, go for it. I think if I'm Philly, I'd be willing to put together a better package than the Lakers can offer, even if it's a rental. Okay. Like, I I would be. I mean, I could see why Boston wouldn't have that motivation. I think once you're starting to say, well, we need to have a guy like Tatum or we we absolutely have to have Brown involved. Like if Boston didn't have the assurances that Kawhi is going to resign, I could see why they're just like, yeah, whatever. We've got other things going on. I but think that's Philly, a great point. Hold on. I let think me, Philly's me... in a different spot though, right? Yeah. So Boston has been mentioned all day on Thursday as a potential suitor for Kawhi and we should just go through the reasons it would be tough for them like number one the injury stuff really is uncertain and if you're Boston making a play for Kawhi you're doing it because you intend to win the title next year and you don't know exactly what version of Kawhi you're getting but they wouldn't be trading for him to then go recruit superstars the way the Lakers would so it, it makes less sense on that front and then he can leave next summer and you know there's less comfort with his agent there and they they don't really know how that will play out and also even if he stays next summer the Celtics have to pay huge money to Kyrie Irving and Al Horford in addition to Kawhi as a free agent and they'd also be giving up assets that they could use to try and steal Anthony Davis a year and a half from now so it just there there are that that's a lot of risk and i would i would admire danny ainge for ignoring all of that and trying to go win the title next year but i i think the smart play is to sit this one out if you're the celtics and i if i were the lakers i would call san antonio's bluff and be like i know boston is not putting anything on the table so you got to deal with us and your point on the Sixers, though, is actually the, the most interesting part of this because I completely agree with you. Like, you look at where Philly is right now. They need a star. They've got this summer and next summer to try and go get one to complete that nucleus with Embiid and Simmons. And I don't know. I Like, our it's SI's Jake Fisher reported that the current offer from the Sixers is looking like Dario Saric, Robert Covington, and that 2021 first they got from the Suns, which is the heat pick. But I like I would be that's, offering that's more the than we that, don't right? give an F offer. Come on, man. That's the we that's our first we're gonna put this out there offer. I mean, come on, let's get real. Like this yeah, is like, Kawhi Leonard. You're gonna get more you, than that for Kawhi Leonard. Why not put Fultz in that deal? I, I don't totally see it. Well, I think because this negotiation is still unfolding. I mean, I think that's just the early, like, these are the pieces who we wouldn't really even, you know, bother losing. You know, like, yeah. none of those are like kind of critical losses if you're Philadelphia. Um, I just want to mention the way you so logically laid out Boston's thinking. Andrew, I mean, I can tell that all these waking hours you're spending pouring over this stuff is really paying off. I mean, <laughs> that sounded like that sounded like you were going through a decision tree or a spreadsheet of like if then statements. I mean, that was very very impressive. Yeah. Um, but I come back to I don't think it's kind of a sham here. Like I think if you're San Antonio, the teams that you're thinking who would really be able to enter this seriously, the Lakers, the Sixers, and after that, it I, to me it, it gets pretty questionable. But um, I would not be rushing to trade him to LA if I'm San Antonio. I just wouldn't. I don't see the benefit. I don't think other offers would disappear. I think there's only a certain number of guys. Like let's say for example, they don't trade Kawhi, 
to San yep. Antonio and Paul George and LeBron go to the Lakers. Doesn't that make Philly more inclined to improve their offer because they missed out on Paul George and LeBron and therefore they still need to have somebody to kind of tool up not only to match up with Boston but potentially to match up with the Warriors in a finals uh to me I think Philly only gets thirstier if they miss out on those other two guys and so that offer would still be there so I don't see the urgency from San Antonio's side that's my point yeah I agree with you and I also think that letting this play out a little bit longer would give Philly the opportunity to open some dialogue with Kawhi and his group of whoever that he's been working with for the last year and maybe try to get some assurances or at least an indication that Kawhi would be open to staying in Philly and and isn't like dead set on going to LA next summer. Because, you know, again, Fultz, like... It's a tricky call on, on whether to include him. I understand the people who would say you're selling at like the lowest possible value for him, but that actually isn't true. And he, he has value this summer because people are still willing to buy into the idea that he can kind of get his game back and, and turn into the player everyone thought he was going to be. But if that doesn't happen, he really has no value next summer and he really has no value going forward and he doesn't fit next to Ben Simmons. I mean, you know, if I were the Sixers, I'd be camped out in the pure sweat gym in L.A. with Drew Hanlon and like looking for any signs that you can find to see what what kind of game Fultz has at this point. But like, you know, Kawhi is so good. Just roll the dice here. That's the that's the one angle. I'm glad you brought it up because I just don't understand why they're not more active. One other thought I've had on Philadelphia, and it came from the award show. Don't worry, I'm not going to go for another 20 minute breakdown on the <laughs> award <you>. show. <laughs> but Simmons was asked about like, hey, you know, what's the plan this summer? Are you guys going to try to upgrade, et cetera, et cetera? And he had a sort of a glancing statement like, hey, we don't really have a veteran star who could maybe, you know, help, uh, you know, me and Joel build uh, in Philadelphia. And yeah, it wasn't like he just came out and said, yo, we want King James in Philly. Like he didn't say it that way. And I, I kind of wonder where Simmons fits onto this, uh, you know, this this layout, because if you're him, do you really want LeBron? I mean, there are definitely benefits, but there's the obvious drawback of the ball comes out of your hands and you're not very good uh, on the perimeter. So you're just going to have to spend all your life cutting and you know your your weaknesses are going to be more obvious than they were before. He's yep. got a ton of positive momentum individually building for him after this Rookie of the Year campaign. And he's just obviously in ascendance. Some of that's going to be put on hold if LeBron kind of steps in. I feel like if I'm Ben Simmons... I might want both Kawhi and Paul George more than LeBron James. And so maybe that's why he was kind of using that kind of cryptic terminology when he was, you know, asked about their summer plans at the award show. It's like a veteran star, you know, like that could right. apply to any of those guys rather than, you know, hey, we would really like to have the best player in the world. It would be great <laughs> if he came and played for us. You know, I love it when he calls me young king on Instagram. You know, it could have been <laughs> more obvious, you know, recruiting pitches if you're Simmons. And I think if you're Philadelphia's management, right? Yeah. You're you're picking up the pieces from the Colangelo disaster. The last thing you can do is anything that will aggravate either Embiid 
or Simmons. And if you're starting to get the sense that Simmons doesn't necessarily want a LeBron or he would prefer to just keep having the ball in his hands all the time, that would again push you back to this Kawhi trade scenario and thinking like, hey, that really is where we should you know, start thinking about collecting our assets together and go making a play for him, uh, especially if LeBron is sort of you know, leaning towards LA at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah, you mentioned um, the Simmons, his like rising presence in the media. I really did love Nike's ad after he actually won the Rookie of the Year where they said, not a rookie, the rookie. It was a great own of Adidas after like four months of harassment from those guys. Um, yeah, good that job, was a che- Nike. That was a checkmate move where you just like knock your guy over. Okay, yeah. I, I, I surrender. <laughs> very, very solid. I'm with you though. I think if you're Simmons, he really does view himself as a future kind of icon of the league and one of the like four or five most famous people in the NBA that's who knows whether he'll get there but that's what he wants to be and for for one thing winning rookie of the year was important to him it's why he sat out the final month of his actual rookie season and so digs in no it's just true he cares about this stuff and that's one reason all these guys would want to play with Kawhi because Kawhi doesn't necessarily care about that stuff as much and uh, he fits well next to just about anybody in the NBA. So that's part of the appeal, no question. And look, there are obviously risks trading for Kawhi. You don't know if he's the same player. You don't know if he'd want to stay in Philly. I just think it, they're at a place where it makes sense to take a calculated risk. Um, and let I, me I, ask you, let me ask you, flip it though. If you're Kawhi, wouldn't you probably also want to play in Philly? Easier path to the finals, yeah. not as much competition at your position. You don't have to deal with the LeBron drama. Like if it's Philly or the Lakers, and I understand hometown angle, Lakers, huge market. I get all of the benefits of the Lakers, obviously. But I'm just wondering, like, if you're Kawhi, wouldn't the Sixers? I mean, you, you'd be on a number one ranked defense. You would, you'd have a great defensive center behind you. Yeah. Uh, you would have a really good chance, an easier chance at making the finals. Uh, it seems like that's where he should be thinking. Like if Kawhi was actually being advised well and not by his uncle, <laughs> I think his advisors would be saying, this Philly situation has a lot to offer you. Take a look at it. Yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And it's hard to know what Kawhi actually wants. Like Stephen A. Smith, this is all stuff that you've probably missed. <laughs> um, but Stephen A. Smith came out on a podcast late, Wednesday night and said that Kawhi actually isn't particularly enamored of playing in LA next to LeBron and whether that's true or not I do think that there's a chance that Kawhi could get to LA and get three or four weeks into the season and look around at the circus around LeBron who I think is also going there and be like wow I I miss doing those grocery store commercials in San Antonio and not speaking for six months. I think, you know, his idea of L.A. might be a little bit different than the reality once he gets there. Well, that's what I'm telling you. Wait until if he goes to L.A., wait until they have a three game losing streak and then we'll see how he really feels because the media store will come down on them hard. And I've been calling that one for a while. Okay, so I don't want to just, I guess my main takeaway from Kawhi is I don't think the Spurs should rush into a trade. I think Kawhi should really be exploring his options, particularly Philadelphia. And if I'm Philadelphia, 
I'm not sticking to my guns with some Sarge nonsense offer, and I'm getting ready to <laughs> to, to put some good stuff in there yeah, to land throw Kawhi. Zaire Smith in there too. He's not going to be good for another four years. Um, I, I just yeah one that other... 2021 pick Andrew. It's the, <laughs> it's the it's the crown jewel of the yeah. asset trove. One other thing that I wanted to mention is that thinking through this, I don't think like the the initial Woj reporting was all premised on the idea that LeBron's not going to go to LA without the commitment of Paul George and or Kawhi Leonard before he commits. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that the appeal of the Lakers this summer for him is that they are asset rich and will have the opportunity to build out a team around him with stars that he kind of handpicks and whether that's Paul George and Kawhi this week, we don't know. But like LeBron could easily go there and then three weeks later they trade for Kawhi. And it, it really is shaping up to be pretty similar to the move to Cleveland in 2014 where it was like the outlines of a, of a good team are there and LeBron is going to be taking kind of a leap of faith. And I think he probably trusts Palinka and Magic more than he trusts whoever is is in the Cleveland front office. And that could be the deciding factor. Well, look, if he goes to LA and Paul George isn't in tow, then I want my money back on this three-part ESPN series about Paul George's free agency <laughs> decision. If you need three parts of a video to re-sign with Oklahoma City, give me a break. I mean, we already are not the world's biggest, you know, playoff P fans around we here. We really are. And <laughs> he's not helping takes, himself. If it takes 18 minutes of behind the scenes footage for him to go back and play with Westbrook, I'd be mean, give me a break. Can I make one point on LeBron's decision though, Andrew? I'm not sure yeah, hit that me. everyone's made it. And it might go along with what you just said about if he goes to the Lakers, they're in a position to sort of, you know, be solid going forward. When you look at all of the teams that are, you know, even on the outskirts of the LeBron James Derby, most of them will be okay if they don't land LeBron. Like you can even make the case that the Lakers, even if they struck out on these big stars because of this young core, they would at least enter next season with positive momentum. Now it would, it would be embarrassing if they just got none of these three guys there's no doubt about it but they wouldn't be devastated right yeah the sole the only exception here is cleveland if lebron leaves cleveland i don't think that we've spent enough time talking about how awful and utterly decimated they will be and how quickly they could put themselves in position to just be the worst team in the league period so like consider this let's say lebron leaves they get nothing for him all they have to do is put Kevin Love into a trade scenario, maybe even to like Oklahoma City. Like, let's say Paul George goes to L.A., LeBron goes to L.A. They could trade like Kevin Love, say, uh, to Oklahoma City, let him pair up with Westbrook, take back whatever, you know, simplistic contracts in a draft pick you could. At that point, your best group is like George Hill, Colin Sexton, J.R. Smith, you know, Tristan Thompson. I mean, you're already a 22 win team, right? At that yeah. point, like, and you could do further, you know, auctioning, you could try to, you know, move Tristan to some sort of a, you know, a contender who wants some kind of a versatile big, maybe uh, you could try to sell off a Kyle Korver here and there. I mean, you could get yourself to a point if you're Cleveland with like two phone calls, you could be a 15 win team next year, very, very easily. And remember when LeBron left the first time, 
They were a 19-win team in the first year after he left, and that let them get the lottery picks to to get Kyrie and to get Tristan Thompson. So this you know strategy has basically already worked for them. And not to mention, going cheap and just selling off as many contracts as possible would definitely appeal to Dan Gilbert, given that he's had these massive luxury tax bills definitely. to sort of finance their four you know straight finals runs. So. The backfire potential here if LeBron leaves Cleveland is massive, but I think it could wind up being a very clean teardown uh, if you're a Cavs fan. And I think if you're a Cavs fan, that's what you should be rooting for here. Boom or bust. Boom, LeBron stays, but bust if he leaves. Trade Kevin Love within 24 hours. You know, Have that trade teed up, ready to go. And then just you are the league's worst team. You're going forward with that, and you'll you'll catch everybody in 2020 once you've got a few more lottery picks to build around. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not a Cavs fan, so I don't want to speak on their behalf. But I I have to imagine that after the last four years of weekly melodrama, it will be kind of a relief to just look at next season and be like, screw it. Let's tear it all down. Let's win 15 to 18 games and gun for RJ Barrett at the top of the draft. Like that's not the worst thing in the world. And um, I don't know. I think the, the Cavs fans that I have interacted with over the last month or two all seem to be in a pretty good place with all of this. And, uh, and I'm happy for, for them. They're the most emotionally balanced fan base of anyone who's in the mix over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Do you know what I would do if I was a Cavs fan? I would, if, if all this plays out like I'm, you know, their worst case scenario here, Yeah, I would spend all of next season just rewatching the 2016 finals over and over and over again. Definitely. And then I would just, then I would just talk myself into Colin Sexton being like the greatest Look, player. The you know? 2016 finals were so cool that if that happened to me as a fan, I could live off that for like 20 years without caring about anything else. So I think they're all good. And that's part of the reason that they are being strangely mature about everything here because that was so cool that nothing else matters. But for listen, sure. So you just you relive those great moments and then you really push Sexton hard for rookie of the year. You know, you just make whatever. Kenny, <laughs> I don't know about you know, all that. I'm not particularly sold on Colin Sexton, but I'm he, not saying either. He's a I'm good player to tank with. This is how you pass the time if you're them. Like it will get <laughs> ugly. You know, 15 wins is not going to be fun. You might have visions of Byron Scott like flashing through your memory bank. It could happen, but you're going to come out on the other side of it in a better spot if you just rip everything down this summer. That's yeah. that's my plan for Cleveland if LeBron walks. All right. Well, let's keep it moving because we have the CJ McCollum interview at the end of this podcast. So we have to keep it a little bit tighter today. Um one more question on LeBron. Caleb said, Stephen A. Smith just reported LeBron texted KD about joining the Lakers. So here's my theory. Kevin Durant wants to be a mogul, right? He's involved in all that Silicon Valley stuff. And LBJ has an established media company in Burbank. What if LeBron James offered Kevin Durant a substantial stake in his media company if he comes to L.A.? to play for the Lakers. Um, I love any and all InfoWar sports theories. And as Ben said at the outset of this podcast, this is a conspiracy-friendly zone. So thank you, Caleb, for passing that along. Uh, LeBron denied that he reached out to KD, for the record. and and Or actually, sources close to LeBron 
reached out to Joe Varden. I don't know. We're all in the web here. <laughs> Welcome to the Matrix. Um, I did enjoy Warriors fans losing their mind over that news this morning and spending like the next four hours calling LeBron a hypocrite. Um, the reason I included this, Ben, is because I feel like KD's free agency has gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit, partly because I think people are just a little bit bored with the Warriors and bored arguing about KD. But I think that the length of Durant's deal that he signs this summer is going to be really, really interesting and may have a bigger impact on like the, the next three years of the league than whatever LeBron or Kawhi do. Yeah, I mean, I think that is, you know, the underrated storyline. You know, after those guys get settled, the next biggest story is how long was KD willing to lock into? And yeah. did Ma Bob Myers cost himself a year of commitment with and his he ridiculous He honestly, God, might have. And he never apologized for that, did he? Uh, not that I saw. Yeah, well, he didn't apologize to it to my liking. I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> didn't I mean, live his, up to the his, Gulliver standard. His parade comments. Yeah, that will be crazy if that cost him a guaranteed year from KD in terms of commitment. I mean, how are we handicapping? What are we thinking? KD signs like two years plus a third year opt out, or is he going to go shorter? Or do you think they can get him in for longer? I mean, where are you standing on that? I guess the compromise solution would be two plus one. That yeah. feels kind of like the move here. That way, KD doesn't have to deal with another year of free agency rumors. He just buys himself a year free of, of talk. They can go through next season. Uh, you know, with a little bit less, you know, maybe, you know, choppy water as you would expect. That seems like the way I'd play it if I was him. That is certainly the most reasonable option for both sides, I think. Um, I, I'm selfishly hoping for a two-year deal with an opt-out next summer. Um, I'd, but I am an unreliable narrator when it comes to some of this stuff. So uh, you're right that like the most logical deal is, is a three-year deal with an opt-out after two. I just think it, it, like even after next summer, KD is going to be coming off three straight titles, will be kind of king of the league. And at the same time, I would imagine that people are still going to be as lukewarm on him as they are this summer. And uh, I like, it could make sense to leave next summer. That's all I'm saying. But um, and the, the other thing that I would note is that Rich Kleiman was weirdly involved with the New York Knicks coaching search. And there was a, a week there where like Mark Jackson was being floated as the favorite to coach the Knicks. And it came out that that was Rich Kleiman's pick or, or that he was advising them and pushing Mark Jackson, which seemed completely bizarre at the time. But clearly there's a relationship there. And the Knicks just signed Royale Ivy as an assistant coach who has been very close to KD dating back to his time at Texas. And the Knicks are going to have max cap space somewhere over the next two years. So just letting everyone know <laughs> the pieces on the board, stay woke, keep your third eye open. It's something to monitor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad that the best the Knicks can do is hire a, a close buddy <laughs> to their staff. And, like, <laughs> and by and the so, way, that did not work for the Wizards. Yeah, so you can either go to New York and play with Royale Ivy, or you could stay in the <laughs> Bay Area and play with Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and, yeah. and Clay Thompson. And win Boy. 10 titles. Okay, maybe yeah. Kevin Durant's staying. You've convinced me. Um, no, uh, my point on this uh, KD versus LeBron in LA, you know, texting thing and all that, 
I got to say, I'm a little disappointed because this comes out and normally this would seem so sensational. I'd lose my mind, but I'm pretty sure that you had telegraphed this idea about KD and LeBron in LA like two months ago. So it kind of felt like everybody was just catching up to your galaxy brain from like mid-May, you know? (laughs) Yep. LeBron is a listener of Open Floor. Absolutely. I I buy that. Yeah. So I don't see KD going to LA this summer. Um, I think if you were going to do that and really, truly you know, shake everything up. You would have to let out more breadcrumbs if you're KD, you know, like especially after the way the last one went when you pretty much had the worst uh, fallout of any decision we've seen. I mean, it's still lingering. Guys like you, you know, casual fans won't (laughs) forgive him. And uh, I think if you were going to bolt for LA at this point right now, you would need to do some serious, you know, groundwork, you know, laying of the you know, laying of your thought process out in public so people would sort of, you know, become acclimated to it before you just shock the world. So I don't see it. Well, I see you trying to bait me, but in the interest of podcast efficiency and not dropping a two-hour podcast on Friday morning, I got to keep it moving. Um, One quick question from Rod who says, what is it about DeMarcus Cousins that makes today's NBA media blind to reality? Look at Andrew's free agency piece on Thursday. First, he writes, One league source texted me this week. New Orleans didn't miss him. It's not even clear he's a winning player, even when he's healthy. Then Sharp says, I understand that New Orleans wants to recoup value from a superstar they traded for just 18 months ago. But look, literally in the sentence before, an NBA source told you the truth about Boogie. Then you call him a superstar in the next sentence. Uh, I would just say that is a fair criticism. I, I was referring to DeMarcus Cousins the way the Pelicans probably view him and the way the Pelicans viewed that trade and the way they, the value they're seeking to get back um, or, or retain this summer. And the reason I include that is because my one great hope for free agency is that the Pelicans find a way to move Boogie because whether and look Boogie could absolutely end up in DC, which would probably be a disaster. But I'm I'm ready for anything at this point. But uh, I like I think if they can find a way to flip Demarcus Cousins for a wing, it's a really good thing for the Pelicans long term, and that team becomes a lot more interesting next year. Yeah, I mean, look, Rod. Don't lump in the rest of the NBA media with Andrew Sharp. Come on, man. <laughs> Andrew speaks for You're himself, me. not the NBA media. But no, here, look, that was all a huge prelude to a much better question that I'm going to ask, which okay. is, would you rather have Dwight Howard on the minimum or the mid-level, whatever it takes to get him to Washington, or DeMarcus Cousins on a three- or four-year max deal in a sign-and-trade for Otto Porter? Which would you prefer? Um, you know what? That's a good segue to the to the wizard section, which I've been avoiding. Uh, but we'll just ask this question from Marcos, who said, "In the history of the NBA, has there ever been a combination of tougher personalities, and he, I mean tough in a bad way, than the combination of Dwight Howard, Austin Rivers, and John Wall?" And yes, I am assuming that they signed Dwight Howard next season. Of course, in that same locker room. One player pulled a gun on a teammate, so maybe that version of the Wizards wins the worst personality contest. Either way, I'm so sorry, Sharp. Uh, Thank you, Marcos, and thank you, Ben, because 
You first texted me about the Dwight possibility like five minutes after they traded for Austin Rivers when I was broken and vulnerable, and you were one of like eight people who reached out with that idea. And I believe I told you that night that I'd rather lose without Dwight Howard than win with him. But Wise, Wiser words have never been spoken, but... I, I I sense you've changed your mind. Continue. Honest to God, I have. I'm sort of warming oh, up to the no. idea of Dwight on a minimum deal because I don't know who else is going to pay Dwight Howard. And look, the one thing you can say for Dwight is he has given Al Horford problems over the years, and I'd like to sort of reignite that Celtics-Wizards rivalry. I don't know. I'm, I am lost in the wilderness right now, but what I... What, what I ultimately decided after thinking about it for 24 hours is that if I'm going to have to root for Austin Rivers next season, let's just go all in on dysfunction and see what happens. So whether that means 320-pound DeMarcus Cousins coming off an Achilles injury <laughs> or Dwight Howard coming in there and just butting heads with John Wall for nine months, uh, God, talk about somebody who will make you miss Marchin Gortat. I don't know. I'm I'm good with whatever. I I am feeling no pain at this point. Yeah, he's not going to be spoon fading cousins. It's going to be ladling. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but hey, the five deep uh, mantra that Wall has. I mean, could you have ever pictured in your wildest dreams the five deep would be Wall Beal? Austin Rivers, Markeith Morris, <laughs> and either Dwight Howard uh, or DeMarcus Cousins. No, point blank, though. Answer my question. Cousins on the max or Howard on the minimum or like the mid-level? If you had to choose which direction you would go, knowing you'd lose Otto, uh, those are your options to fill in at the five. Uh, which do you take? Are you rooting for Cousins? Are you going to just gamble? on? The, are you going all in and just saying, let's see what happens? Pray that somehow Wall and Cousins can be those superstars, quote-unquote, to take you uh, deeper in the playoffs oh man it's really tough but i mean if it really is if... it's it's close like <laughs> these are not good options right i mean you're playing russian roulette here here's the thing i what i said to you initially about dwight howard i really do feel in my heart like i don't want to get to a point where i have to sincerely root for dwight howard to win and um you know no offense to him but i'm just it's I'm not on team Dwight. So I think that at no the, offense to him, but he's a, <laughs> he's a pariah. <laughs> he's a leper, a basketball leper, but I no offense look myself in the eye. I can't look myself in the mirror uh, and claim to be a Dwight Howard fan. So I think for that reason, I would choose boogie because I can talk myself into boogie and, and probably will. I mean, look, we read the, the boogie conspiracy theory at the top of the podcast. I think if that happens, I it will take me about a week, and hopefully Boogie has trimmed down since his last public appearance. But I can buy into him, Beal, and Wall. I, I I would also say it's worth considering whether trading Beal in that scenario might be a little bit better. I think the fit with Wall, Otto, and Boogie 
is a little bit cleaner. Um, no, but you're, you're totally right. The last thing you want to have is an adult quality two-way player to screw <laughs> this up. I mean, you, Look, you need to get rid of the only talented guy on a reasonable contract on the roster. Good call. No, I don't know. You're right. Veal is the one guy who I – Look, if I were running the team, I would be like moving heaven and earth to try and build the future around Beal. Um, but if you're trading for Boogie, all bets are off. I, I Either way, I think – the Wizards are leaders in the clubhouse of that group of like Raptors, Blazers, the the, the group of teams that have kind of plateaued. I, I'd throw the Bucks in there. The, the Wizards are the team that seems most likely to do something crazy over the next few weeks. And again, I'm in for whatever. Because at this point, if you just brought back last year's team, it was going to be even more depressing this upcoming season. So I'm, let's let's shake things up. So let's see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, you sound a lot like the Blazers fans who were talking themselves into Carmelo last summer, and (laughs) they also started breathing a sigh of relief basically two weeks into the season and were so glad they hadn't gone with Carmelo. Now I'm picturing how quickly you would turn on Boogie. Probably by the trade deadline, you would already have like your top 10 Boogie trades of how we can unload a $100 million contract for a guy who's got the, uh, the coming off the tour to Achilles. I mean, I guess to be honest, I am rooting for you guys to get cousins now because I just think that it'd be you good will for run. content. Absolutely, I mean it would it would be great for the c word content, <laughs> the one that I don't like to use, and it would also just be great for your roller coaster of emotions. I mean, I think everything that you love and hate about yourself would come out. <laughs> Boogie would bring all the best and worst out of you, and now I'm rooting for that. Yeah, well, the last time I watched Boogie Cousins was in D.C. And I believe he put up like 30 and 20 that night. And I came away so disgusted with his effort on defense and how like chubby he was and just like generally lazy. And yet his numbers were fantastic. So yeah, I'm ready for the journey. (laughs) Boogie to DC. Here we go. Yeah, watching him every night could finally turn you into a pro Spurs and Chris Middleton <laughs> it might, guy. It really might. Just... It could be the last stage of your transformation into a Gulliver disciple. I want this. All right. Well, last question here from Cecilia, who re- who writes in to say, regarding Elizabeth's gym encounter, welcome to being a female NBA fan. I once had to show a guy my League Pass account uh, to prove that I was a real fan. First of all, this is the second person this week I've seen who had to deal with this. An SB Nation editor, Elena Bergeron, tweeted about some guy quizzing her to test her NBA knowledge. And I just hope that there aren't that many guys out there who are actually that lame. I guess maybe they're flirting, but it's, it's a bummer that Elizabeth isn't the only person who had to deal with that stuff. Oh, it's not that much of a bummer because let's flip this around. Elizabeth is now a feminist icon, okay? This girl's not only become a celebrity on open floor, but she has become a rallying cry for women across the world who just want to love basketball and talk basketball. So look, Elizabeth, we can't thank you enough. Uh, On top of that, Andrew, remember how you were afraid to post your stickers on your Instagram? Yeah. Well, guess what? I got like 60 followers on Instagram just (laughs) because I posted it. So I'm just saying you missed out on a major opportunity here. Elizabeth is running a gravy trade. You should have hopped on like I hopped on because it's clearly, you know, team winners. You know, LeBron used to have those roll with the winners hats. Uh Uh, I think, you know, 
Elizabeth might really be like you know usurping his entire uh, flow there. But <laughs> well, wait. Fe- I have one other update for you. It's very important. Okay. So I did actually do a little legwork and check with some people up in Boston about Danny Ainge's profanity habits. Oh, look at you. (laughs) Doing some real reporting. Wow. First of all, I should add that there was a long silence after I asked the question about Danny Ainge's profanity But what I heard back was that, in fact, he tries very hard not to curse. And basically the only time he'll curse is when he's quoting someone else. So, in other words, Danny Ainge is a confirmed card-carrying member of Team Elizabeth. Well, no surprise. Nothing but winners (laughs) on our squad over here, Andrew. Absolutely. You have a lot to learn. But, guys, if you have any questions or experiences like Cecilia is describing, go ahead. Email them in, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Andrew, if we have any mission in life, it's to make the world more open-hearted towards pure basketball fandom, right, regardless of race, color, gender, creed. Everything else, we are one happy Giannis loving uh, globe. <laughs> one happy Giannis loving family. Uh, but listen, before we move on to CJ McCollum, who you had a lot of fun talking to, I need to tell you, Ben, today's episode is sponsored by our friends. Part of, they're certainly part of the Open Floor family, B Dubs. So, Ben, please tell us about Buffalo Wild Wings. If you take nothing else from this episode, Andrew, I want these words to just be ingrained in your mind. Those words are over the top because Buffalo Wild Wings, Andrew, (laughs) they cannot help themselves. They just go overboard with their limited time offerings. Get this. Take the new signature sampler for an example. For just $15, you get wings and not one. Not two, but three shareable options like fried pickles or cheese curds. And then, what was that phrase I just reminded you to remember, Andrew? Over the That's top. That's right. Over the top, because they have the very aptly named over the top nachos. It's a literal mountain of crispy tortilla chips, a glacier of nachos loaded with your choice of pulled pork or honey barbecued grilled chicken, corn, jalapenos and much more. Yep, and then you can top it all off with their new Platinum Margarita. Go overboard with the gang at B-Dubs today. Wings, beer, sports, available for a limited time while supplies last, and please drink responsibly. Ben, go talk to CJ McCollum. We will link up probably on Tuesday of next week to recap the madness this weekend. I will talk to you soon. Let me tease this interview real quick, Andrew, because we don't do a lot of interviews or guest stars, do we? Uh, C.J. McCollum, obviously most improved player winner in the NBA, borderline all-star type contender out there at the Western Conference. Andrew, I asked him about the most open floor topics possible. So LeBron 
LeBron James Jr., Chris Middleton, uh, how he would rank the top five players in the top 100 of 2019. He weighed in and gave me his list. And, you know, CJ is a candid guy. He does a lot of media, so he's very comfortable discussing all sorts of topics. We dived in a little bit to the uh, award show as well, how he might improve that. Uh, I asked him who won the Luka Doncic or Trey Young trade. So we covered a lot of ground, and I thought it was a pretty entertaining conversation. Uh, So hopefully you guys will enjoy that. It's coming up right now. This is Ben Golliver with the Open Floor Podcast. We're proud to welcome a special guest, CJ McCollum of the Portland Trailblazers. CJ, how's it going this afternoon? I'm doing well, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So last week I was in New York and I was hanging out with uh, the newest San Antonio Spur, Lonnie Walker. And he was he was telling me he doesn't watch a lot of basketball in general, but he do, he did spend quite a bit of time in college studying Ray Allen's jump shot and then studying what you do in the pick and roll, kind of how you torture big men when you get the switch. And I'm just wondering, you know, you're kind of at that point of your career where you went from being compared to other guys and now guys are being compared to you when they come up through the draft process. Is it weird to sort of be on the other side of those comparisons now? It's cool, man, honestly, because you remember what it was like, you know, as a kid, you remember what it was like in college coming out and hearing the comparisons of certain NBA players. And, you know, to be mentioned, you know, as a comparison for the good, is definitely you know eye-opening and a humbling experience because of where I've come from and what I've come from. But it's funny because I watch a lot of film on a lot of guys who are now peers, and I'm sure he'll go through the same thing. And if his career turns out the way he wants it to, at some point people will be comparing themselves to Lonnie Walker. So you know, shout out to him for watching film on my game and and appreciating the pick and roll and the one-on-one situations. I'm sure the Spurs are looking forward to using him. You know, we got a pretty nerdy fan base, and I'm sure they would all like to know, what's it like when you do get that switch and you've got space to room and people are clearing it out? You've got a big guy. You can kind of see his feet dancing a little bit. He's not real comfortable out, you know, defending in space. What's your sort of checklist that you go through when you're sizing somebody up in that situation, and what are you trying to get to? Um, how do you read it? Yeah, I mean, I would compare it to, you know, being a kid, being hungry and working out and going through your whole day. And, and coming in the house and mom saying the food's not ready yet, food's not ready yet, and then the food is finally ready. That's the type of excitement you have when you get a switch with a big. It's just it's time to eat. <laughs> Literally, it's time to eat, man. It's your, it's your time to basically create space and, and get whatever you want. So a lot of times when I get to switch, sometimes I back them out depending on the situation, especially if you're not going to send a double team and you back them out. And I either want to come at them full speed or you just get a couple of rhythm dribbles and bounce and maybe flinch at them, flinch at them and see how they – respond and if they're kind of panicking and backing up and nervous and you know you got them right where you want them and I usually just try to get to a certain spot on the court whether that be a pull-up a floater or a create space three-pointer and I have a lot of tricks to, to create those types of situations and shots for myself so it just depends on the moment how the game flow is going and, and then at that point it's do I get a floater do I want to get all the way to the basket or do I want to shoot a jump shot and then I make a move and and let, and let instinct take over. You know, we always hear that old adage like, oh, big guys take a lot of time in the NBA. You got to give them, you know, three or four years to sort of acclimate. I'm wondering how long does it take a guard like yourself? You know, you came into the NBA polished. You know, you were uh, for your college player. I mean, you were, were pretty ready to go compared to a lot of the guys who are coming out one and done. But how long is the acclimation process where you're comfortable in those situations where you are looking to eat as opposed to still feeling your way like maybe, uh, you know, some guys are earlier on in their careers? I think it's different player to the player, but the, the biggest thing players go to is situation. 
you know, what type of situation are they in? What type of freedom are they given? The more freedom you're given early on, the more comfortable you are. You're playing heavy minutes, coaches and taking you out for making, you know, poor mistakes. If you're, Chances are if you're on a winning team, your string of freedom is a little bit shorter than guys on losing teams because of the, the magnitude of each possession and how important each game is. So once you get that freedom and that trust by your coaching staff, it's easy to, to be successful and want to go eat. But I, I think it just depends on the situation. But for for most cases, it takes a couple of years. You know, in the rare cases of Jason Tatum, Donovan Mitchell, and Ben Simmons and some of those guys who have been on that path and that route, it takes a few games. You get comfortable, and then you play on the big stage, and you're not sure what's going to happen. You're not sure if the refs are going to give you calls. You're not sure what type of, you know, plays are going to be called for you. But once you get comfortable, as we've seen from some of those guys who had a lot of success this year, the sky's the limit because they're shooting heavy threes. They're trying to dunk on Braun. There's no fear because you know that your coach trusts you, your team trusts you. It's a great situation for you, and they want you to go out there and be yourself. So I would say I would say it takes a few years for most players, but depending on how much freedom you get that rookie year, could determine how fast it speeds up. For sure. So one of the big storylines coming out of the draft, I think, was just the preponderance of big guys, you know, towards the top of the draft order, how many guys were kind of going in the top 10 as as centers, you know, whether they're a modern center or a traditional center. Uh, and then, you know, coming right on the heels of a playoffs, which was basically dominated by, you know, a lot of small ball teams or, you know, Houston going really interchangeable and, and playing a lot of isolation, you know, letting guys like Harden and Chris Paul eat. Uh, I mean, even Cleveland, they were playing a lot smaller in the finals maybe than they did a couple of years ago. I mean, when you see a guy like DeAndre Ayton go number one to the Phoenix Suns, and it really didn't seem like there was much uh, indecision on their minds at all. Like they just went right for him. He was their guy. They take him. And you see some other teams take big guys rather than, you know, playmakers or guards, whether it's Bagley or, or Jaron Jackson Jr. I'm wondering, do you ask the same question as a player, as a guard in this league? Like, are, are you wondering why are why are teams favoring big guys given the way the NBA has sort of evolved here recently? Well, I think that's a great question, but I think it also just depends on team need. The Phoenix Suns have a great guard in Devin Booker, so they're probably trying to pair him with a with a center to have that one two piece. You've heard them mention comparisons to Kobe and Shaq. If you have a great guard and a great big, uh, you have a chance to to put something special together, especially if they're at the same career trajectory in terms of age. So I think that kind of fared into. Uh, why they ended up going that route. Obviously, they could have taken Luka Doncic. They could have taken a guard. But they felt like Aiden was the type of big man who's versatile. He's able to move. He has uh, skill in terms of being able to shoot mid-range, potentially spread it to the three-point line. It gives you that defensive presence in the middle. So I think he was a rare big to where they felt like they couldn't miss on this opportunity. And then you have versatile bigs like Bagley. And you have versatile guards like Doncic who are about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, so in, they're in that wing phase but can also handle the ball full time. So I think it's it's interesting because the guards are never going to go extinct because you need somebody to bring the ball up. You need somebody to be able to orchestrate an offense and this day and age, shooting, dribbling and passing is crucial. Regardless of size, if you can do those three things, you have to play. They have to figure out a way to get you on the court. So big men aren't going to be extinct and guards aren't going to be extinct. They're just going to have to continue to evolve. And I think you're seeing big start to stretch it out, shoot threes. You see Ennis Cannon working on his three point shot. You know, obviously, you know, having Coach Fisdale there in New York now. Marcus Saul was shooting threes last year. I think he, he shot and made over 100 threes in 74 games, which is a career high. So players are adapting based on what's going on in the NBA, but I think the guards and bigs are going to be needed for a long time. Yeah, I hear you. So uh, 
I think the lasting question from this draft, the one that may be the defining question, will be basically who won the Luka versus Trey Young trade, you know, between Dallas and Atlanta. Now, obviously, Atlanta also picked up a, a future first round pick, but I mean, if you had to bet on one of those two guys' careers, uh, you know, being better than the other one, like if, if you had to pick one side of that trade, would you take the Dallas side getting Luka or you take the Atlanta side taking Trey Young? I think that's a tough question. They're both going to be good players, but I think if you're looking at right now impacting on, on the game, I've seen Luka Doncic play at the highest level in Europe. He's played against my brother. He's played in the EuroLeague. He's won championships. He's battle-tested in terms of, being a professional, he's traveling, he's flown to different countries. He's been involved in this lifestyle for, I don't know, five to five to eight years at this point. So in terms of right now, you look at his size, you look at his skill set, he can play in the pick and roll. He can create shots for himself. He can create shots from others. And their coaches is, is talking about playing him at the four. He's going to be full of advantages because of the system, being able to be mentored by Dirk, one of the greatest players to ever played the game and kind of what's around him being in the Western Conference. You got Wesley Matthews, you got, Smith Jr., you got a lot of guys who are going to be in his ear helping him develop. And then you've got Trey Young, who's very, very good. He's smaller. He's he's in the Eastern Conference. Dennis Schroeder's there. I think they, they may potentially try to trade him and move him. not sure what's going to go on with that situation. But, yeah, as a coach, who's going to empower him. Uh, Lloyd's going to empower him, allow him to make mistakes, allow him to take shots similar to the shots he took you know, in college at Oklahoma. So from a situation standpoint, I think Trey Young's going to have the ball in his hands right away and be able to go freely. But I think – Look at Doncic with his size and his pro background. I think he's the player who's ready to play right now more more than a lot of players in this draft because he's already been a professional. Yeah, you mentioned your brother, and I think I read some comments he had made, some analysis of Luca prior to the draft, where he was sort of saying, "Look, you can have a lot of success against European pros, uh, but the just the quality of wing players in the NBA is so much higher on a night to night basis. It's going to maybe test his athleticism and his quickness in a way that you just can't test." Um, overseas I'm wondering you know do you kind of agree with that assessment for Luca and you were hinting at maybe them playing him at the four I mean is that one way to sort of get around those uh, those issues early on is just to slot him up a position so he now has the matchup advantage rather than maybe being at a disadvantage yeah I think they'll play with the matchups a little bit and look whether you go to college or not or play in Europe a Euro League a Euro Cup or whatever the case may be the NBA is just different different games a different speed it's a different skill set so there's going to be disadvantages in a learning curve to where you have to go from playing in a system to playing in the NBA system. So it's going to be tough for all rookies and all players coming in. But I think for Luca, they'll find matchups that favor him. They'll figure out ways to make him a point forward where he can utilize his skill set. Similar to how they've used Harrison Barnes. They played Harrison at the four. They played him at the three. They've moved Dirk around from the five to the four. And then when you have Dennis Smith Jr., who's capable of playing on the one and the two, and you have a defender – in Wesley Matthews, you can move you can move guys around them, and obviously Wes will probably check the best defender and kind of go on down the list and figure out what matchups make sense for your team. Yeah, for sure. My takeaway from that trade, honestly, was that the Hawks GM Travis Lane he kind of stuck his neck out a little bit because I think what you're saying, you know, in terms of Luca being ready to contribute right now, and then also I think people would say he has maybe a higher floor too in terms of like even his worst case scenario is still going to be a pretty good player. I think to roll the dice on a guy like that in favor of Trey Young, uh, that, that's a little risky. I mean, that's the kind where, you know, an analyst like myself and, and yourself too, probably maybe in five years, we might look back on that and say that worked out great or it backfired. I mean, I think there was a, a level of risk that the Hawks management took there uh, that maybe didn't get enough play on draft night. Yeah, I think there's definitely a risk there because as you said before, Luke is a proven commodity and 
one of those players to where at the at the very worst, you know he's going to be getting what twelve and five, thirteen and four right away, and be consistently able to produce those type of numbers. With Trey Young, he could be a poor man Steph Curry, or he could be a poor man's Johnny Flynn. You just never know what's going to happen based on how players adjust to the NBA life. You know how they adjust the day to day grind, injuries. There's a lot of things that can derail or change a, a player's trajectory. But I think. Trae Young's going to be a good player. He has a, a unique skill set. He can shoot, dribble, pass, and play in the pick and roll. And they're going to give him the ball and let him go. Yeah, he's got some star power, a little moxie to him too, I think. Hey, last draft question before we shift gears to talk NBA awards show. I mean, I know it's really early, but did you have like a rookie of the year favorite from this class who you're looking ahead to next year, the guy who you think might make that big impact and take home that, that award? Yeah, it's tough. I always talk to my teammates about you know, figuring out who's going to be the rookie of the year. And a lot of times you have to go through summer league and then see the rotation and, and how much freedom a guy gets. You know, for instance, like Kyle Kuzma, who kind of broke out and, you know, got more playing time and then Ingram got hurt. So then they kind of started him and allowed him to, to grow. But I think looking at, you know, the top five or top 10 players drafted, obviously you have Aiden, who's, who's on the Phoenix Suns. He's going to, he's going to probably average a double-double or close to it. You have Luka Doncic, who's going to probably put up double digits and maybe four to five assists. You have Trey Young, who he could average a lot of points and assists or be middle of the road. But either way, he's going to have an opportunity to score a lot. So looking at those players, I think scoring, rebounding, and assisting is usually what will get you uh, a chance to be an all-star. I think Marvin Marvin Bagley is a guy who has a chance to, to put up you know some serious numbers in Sacramento, depending on what type of role they give him. With his versatility and ability to score, so he's probably this, he's probably one of the guys I think has a chance to be rookie of the year. But you have to see their roster and what type of rotation these, these coaches and teams are putting in place before I make a decision. Yeah, I mean he's got a lot of upside to his game. You can tell they're they're going to be running a lot through him, like right out of the gate, just to see what he can do. I mean, I think another guy who kind of took a risk, you know, during the draft was Vlade in terms of not going Luca, not going Trey, or any of these other guys who were there, and and maybe you know more star power wattage type of a. Uh, type of uh, angle and instead went with a guy he believed wanted to be in Sacramento and could make a big impact. Um, I think, you know, a rookie of the year would go a long way to sort of justify what Vlade did on draft night. Hey, in terms of the NBA awards show, you know, I was at the red carpet. I'll be honest. I had a pretty good time. I was seeing everybody on Twitter, kill it, say it wasn't that fun to watch on TV and everything else. To me, it seemed like a worthwhile event, but I know people complain about the timing of it. Uh, they, you know, that it's way too far after the regular season. You know, sometimes the, the, you know, the LeBrons and the KDs of the world don't show up. You know, maybe the, the musical talent could be better. But I'm wondering, do you see value in this NBA awards show as a concept? Like, should the league continue to do it? And then if you think they should, do you have any improvements or suggestions for tweaks that you would have, whether it's schedule related um, or just, you know, the actual program itself? I think the idea of celebrating the game, you know, putting it on TV and, you know, having the award ceremony is great. I think the players enjoy going out, especially when you had a productive season and you're able to interact with your peers, be around a, a good crowd, have good food, have good meals and entertainment overall in general. I think it's a great concept and great idea. Just a, just a matter of timing, you know, and if you're going to announce it, this is what I think may potentially happen at some point. If you're going to announce the awards later, maybe include the playoffs, maybe allow the playoffs to factor in some of the decision-making and, and postpone the voting. So that way it, there's more interest in the buildup of going through a full playoff 
having the winner, having the champion, and then having the award show later on. Because from a scheduling standpoint, some players go on vacation right away when the season ends, or some players just want to step away from basketball and don't want to really be involved in this setting based on how the season ended. So it's a it's an interesting situation where you have to balance a lot of personalities, a lot of factors. But I like the idea of the show. It's just about finding the timing of it and whether or not including the playoffs in the voting situation. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I mean, the playoffs would have changed everything, right? I mean, a lot of the awards would look different if we, we took into account the playoffs. And the timing thing you mentioned is a great point. Like, they had to pull James Harden back from Paris and Milan, you know, to get him to go to the show. And it's like, you know, some guys are probably, uh, you know, not just would rather be on their vacations than otherwise. You know, I, I saw Bill Russell, he kind of stole the show by flipping the bird to Charles Barkley. And that was funny. But to me, kind of the biggest headline from the whole show was actually what Oscar Robertson said about social activism and, you know, LeBron James's, uh, you know, do you guys expect us to kind of shut up a dribble, you know, that big controversy over All-Star Weekend. And Oscar Robertson kind of came out and he's always a blunt guy and he just called out, you know, white players and basically said, you guys need to be allies for your black teammates. You need to stand up and, uh, you know, support them. Uh, you know, in this kind of a conversation, this is not just a, a black athlete problem. I'm wondering, what did you make of Oscar Robertson's comments? And have you ever talked to your, say, white teammates about these types of issues? Have you ever felt like you wish guys would would step up and, and get your back in, in some of these situations as well? I think it's a great that's a great question. I think you look at the, the situation. Obviously, for us as African Americans, we've been through a lot. We've seen a lot, and a lot of times we're we're the only people who can relate to certain situations, but I think it is a societal issue to where, you know, certain teammates who, who may be white or haven't experienced what we're experiencing aren't sure how to feel about certain situations. They're not sure how to talk about it or how to speak out about it because they haven't gone through random pullovers. They haven't gone through, you know, seeing, you know, a friend of theirs maybe get shot or, or have a run in with the law. So they're not sure how to, how to go about speaking on it or being an activist, so to speak. But I think if players, knowledgeable on the topic, if it really interests them and it touches their hearts, I think they should speak up on it, um, depending on, you know, which which position they, they have in place. But you look at Tom Brady, for example. When Tom Brady came came out and spoke out about kneeling recently and, and his thoughts on it and how he felt like it was freedom of protest and how he supported the players, it painted a completely different light on the situation because here you have a guy who's arguably the best player you know, in the game right now, his peers voted him, you know, the most, most important and number one player in the NFL. You have him speaking out about a societal issue to where so many African-Americans and minorities have, you know, protested, saying why they're kneeling, how it's not about the anthem, how it's about injustices in, in society, injustices and imbalances in, in, in the judicial system. Um, people don't really listen. But when you have someone who is of Tom Brady's stature, who's also not a minority speak out, it becomes more clear around the league that there is actually a problem going on. Yeah, we've seen some things, you know, like the arm chains during the, the National Anthem when guys link arms and, you know, circle up and, and things like that in the NBA. I'm wondering, did you ever have a moment over these last couple of years where you gave serious thought to like kneeling during the National Anthem or like calling a team meeting and saying like, hey, what's happened in D.C.? I don't agree with it. We want to make some sort of a statement. I mean, did it ever get to that level for uh, you guys uh, with the Portland Trailblazers? Yeah, our organization does a great job of being forward th- forward thinkers, putting power in our hands and allowing us to debate and decide on certain topics. So we, we basically discussed everything as a team, talked about what we'd like to do 
uh, going forward, how we feel like we can make a statement and what's necessary and what's not necessary or realistic for us as a team. But the bottom line was whatever we were going to do was going to be as a team. And we felt like, you know, the anthem and the situation about social injustices had been addressed by the NFL. We felt like it's, it's important that you also address it by impacting your communities, being a part of the conversation, driving the conversation forward and having those uncomfortable talks about what's going on with society, what's going on with law enforcement, what's going on with the people and in impoverished neighborhoods and some of the things we're seeing on a day-to-day basis and how to improve upon that, not only with, with finances by putting money involved, but putting your time into the communities. And I think that's more of a approach we've taken as an organization, as a team, where we have those dialogues and those discussions with, with kids of color who, who look like us, act like us, and come from places like us. So I'm wondering, you know, not only for the, the white players who Oscar Robertson was sort of calling out, but maybe even, you know, a white media member like myself or a white fan, I think sometimes there's a hesitancy to join this conversation publicly because there is a fear of uh, maybe saying the wrong thing or coming off the right way. I guess from your perspective, I mean, you're obviously a very media savvy guy and you've been in the NBA for years now. What advice would you give someone, whether it's a a fan, uh, a teammate uh, or a media member who does want to sort of hop in on this, but wants to, you know, wants it to be seen as a genuine effort rather than, you know, grandstanding or, um, you know, maybe, you know, looked at kind of sideways. I mean, what, what advice would you give? Yeah, I think it's important you educate yourself on, on the topic and the matter at hand, you know, have that dialogue, have that conversation with not only white peers, but black peers and, and people who have come from inner cities and people who haven't come from inner cities. That way you're educated on their experiences and, what I've seen and learned is that, you know, being an NBA player, you're exposed to different languages, different religions, people from different backgrounds, walks of life to where how you view life is totally different than how another player views life based on where he grew up at. The slang you use, the food you eat, how you walk, how you talk is completely different. So having that conversation with other journalists or other people from different walks of life, so that way you have a better understanding of where they're coming from, what they've gone through, and how to properly speak on a topic and then I think it's important that it, it it has to come from the heart and it has to be mean something to you. If it means nothing to you, then I don't think people should talk about it because honestly, then it's just a lip service and then it's just uh it it comes off the wrong way as you said before. So it has to be something people are genuinely interested in learning about. Um go sit in go sit in and in, in certain meetings to where you're in, you're engaged in involved and exposed to, to kids from the Boys and Girls Club, kids from different organizations to where you can actually talk to them and ask them how they feel about certain situations and what it's like to grow up the way they're growing up. You know, that's great advice. So on a lighter topic, everyone wants to talk LeBron James free agency. And look, the easy question to ask is, where is he going to go? I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you a better one. How should he announce his decision? I mean, I, I know I've seen you do stuff with the Players' Tribune. I believe you had a column in our magazine when you came out, when you were drafted. Obviously, you've got a podcast, so you, you understand this space well. If you were, you know, LeBron James, or if you were in his shoes this summer, and he's previously, he did the decision on TV with ESPN. Uh, he wrote the letter with Lee Jenkins in 2014. Uh, if you had sort of all eyes on you in 2018 to break big free agency news, how would you go about releasing that news? How would you do it? I think you put the power in your own hands. You know, he's, he's empowered Boys and Girls Clubs. He's empowered different organizations by generating so much funds for them, obviously, with the decision to go to Miami. He raised millions and millions of dollars to to organizations and and kids who are underprivileged and in need of certain things. And the the recent decision to where he wrote the article for Sports Illustrated and Lee Jenkins just allowed him to kind of step away from the spotlight, 
you know, make the article and step away and back off into the into the sunset, so to speak. And, and this year, him being in the league for 15-plus years, he's more mature, he's older, he's gone through the gauntlet of, you know, people kind of discrediting him or being upset with, you know, some of the things he's done and the ways he's done it. So now he's at the point where he doesn't really care what people think about him. He's going to do what's best for himself and his family. And I think, again, some of the platforms he uses, whether that be Instagram or Twitter and his own personal um uh, I think it's uninterrupted along with, you know, he has a, a bunch of different media companies that he works with and has started from the ground up. He may partner with one of his own companies and then release it to his own social media or one of those, one of those avenues. I think that's the safest and easiest way to build your own company up and have a safe, easy message out there to where it's not a big, a big show or a big scene. And then he can enjoy the rest of the summer. I'm glad you mentioned Instagram. This is my pet theory. So I did a story on Instagram and like their success in the NBA community can you imagine how crazy it would be if he just put out a message, you know, like sent out a press release and was like, I'm going to announce my decision at 3 p.m. on Instagram Live, tune in. Like how many millions of followers do you think he would add like during that couple hour uh, time period? How many people do you think would be watching that simultaneously? I mean, that would be a crazy event, don't you think? Hey, I'm not going to lie to you. I would for sure log in and watch it live. And I think <laughs> he has millions of followers and millions of people who aren't even interested in basketball who would be interested in seeing, you know, where he's going to go. Yeah, I think that's how he should do it. That's my personal. That's my personal uh, pick, LeBron. If you're listening, follow my advice. I won't steer you wrong. Hey, I saw your tweet about Bronny, uh, his son, uh, earlier this week. You said he's ready for the league. He's got the complete skill set. Uh, what kind of a player do you see him, you know, developing into at this point? I mean, it, it seems like he's, um, you know, wise in, in basketball above his years, right? Yeah, the sky's the limit for him. The DNA, the blood, the way he sees the court, explosiveness, athleticism, skill set. He has a handle. He's able to create space. He can go off the right foot, right hand, and do floaters. He can shoot the three effortlessly. This kid's a bona fide pro. He's going to be a pro, and, and he has that superstar gene to where he continues to work hard and, and grows into his body and see how explosive he's becoming as a 13-year-old. I can only imagine how good he'll be as a rookie in the NBA at 18 when he's able to come out, of, come out of high school and go right to the pros and potentially play against still with his dad. Man, you see him with the, the pull-up threes, too, off the dribble. You know, that's the scary thing. Like, it took LeBron a few years to get that in the NBA, and now he's his son's in middle school, and he's already kind of, like, pulling up off the three, you know, like like you or Dame or, or, or uh, Steph. I mean... That's just the evolution of the game, and you could see it, you know, applied already. Yeah, I think it's it's awesome that he's developing so fast. He's he's enjoying the process and kind of showing that, you know, he's he's fully fully invested into his development and skill setting and figuring out ways to improve. Hey, so I want to get uh, you out of here uh, with one final topic, and it was something that Kevin Durant raised when he was kind of talking about blog boys, you know, a month or two ago. And I think his basic argument was that a lot of people who follow the game closely on Twitter, whether they're media members or sort of diehard fans, they may be underrate sort of like the bucket getting aspect uh, of the NBA in favor of analytics or just number crunching or, you know, viewing players through a certain lens that maybe doesn't take into account sort of joy for the game, love for the game. And, and all of that, he really sparked a, a debate. And one thing I pointed out as I was reacting to that is that, you know, KD's crunch numbers, he's used the analytics to sort of make himself fine tune his own game. So he's being a little disingenuous there because I think uh, he's using some of the same tactics he's kind of accusing maybe observers of. 
Uh, I'm wondering how much do you lean on analytics when in terms of like say developing your shot selection diet or you know changing certain things about how you 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 run different uh, you know aspects of your role offensively. And then do you agree with him that sort of outside observers maybe overrate, you know, certain factors and underrate others? Yeah, I think analytics is something that a lot of players who don't play the game rely on and look at. But for us, you know, we hear about it. We're given the statistics, the facts about, you know, how much we drive right versus left. And the information is great, but I think at some point there's a, there's a, a case of, uh, paralysis by analysis where there's too much going into, you know, the numbers and what's happening on the court and people aren't actually just watching the game and understanding that KD gets buckets and he scores at every level, which is hard to do. It's hard to be able to make threes, catch and shoot, make threes off the dribble, make mid-range shots, fading away, straight up and down, whatever you want, and be able to score in the paint. He's able to score at three levels. And I think for athletes and, and players who play the game, we kind of look at the game from a different perspective and point of view because we play it. Now, I'd be lying if I said I don't look at the analytics because it's an important part of the game. It's something that a lot of players are being judged on now. So I try to shoot the ball and, and play the game the way I've always played it, but you have to adapt to the times and adjust. And this is the era where three-pointers are more valuable. And a lot of players are starting to shoot more threes. And I'm a guy who keeps the mid-range jumper alive. I shoot a lot of mid-range jumpers, step-backs going left, step-backs going right. I snake pick and rolls. I take advantage of isolation situations and heavy and pull up on big men's, on big men's faces. But – at times, I hear about how I shoot more threes or staff will bring me the numbers, and it makes sense. So I think guys are starting to shoot more threes and take advantage of some of the analytics, but at the same time, you have to be who you are and play the game the way you do. And I think that's kind of what Katie's getting at is that a lot of, as he likes to call them, blog boys have never played, so they don't understand that. Although the numbers might say it's better for them to take that three, they feel like a certain shots are easier for them, more comfortable for them to rise up into. And then you see guys who shoot three feet behind the line. I don't know what analytics says about that, but Steph Curry can shoot three feet behind line. Dame can't. KD can't, as we've seen before with his game winner, the series sealer, uh, this past series against the Cavs. Guys' range is increasing, and the game is continuing to evolve and change. So I think you need a little bit of everything, but whoever you are is who you have to be, or you'll be out the league. So let's coach up some blog boys, right? So you have access to having played, and I know it's hard to sort of like pass on that information to someone maybe who hasn't, but... Uh, I guess, what advice would you give to someone who cares enough to dig into the stats, cares enough to watch hours of film? You know, a lot of the people who are blog boys are the same guys who are breaking down tape and you know, they probably want to be assistant video coordinators working for minimum wage. That's like, that's probably their dream job, right? right. So what are some of the messages you would tell these hardcore fans? Like, here's what we as players maybe know that you guys are underrating and here's maybe what you should look for as you're doing your study. Yeah, I think the numbers say a lot of different things. And some of that is predicated on system, you know, where shots are generated from based on the staff and how the organization is running an offense and trying to get players in certain positions. But there's only a few players who can be great on on a lot of different teams. I think Katie hit hit that hit the nail right on the head. Analytics might show a guy is really good in a certain system, but you move him out of that system and he's not the same player. And as guys who play in the league, we know that. Whether the numbers say it or not, we can tell based on how a guy plays when you play against him, you know, whether it's a back-to-back, whether he's playing with the first unit or the second unit. Uh, it comes down to, to two things. We know who's real and we know who's not. And it's hard for the analytics people and others who are just watching the numbers and watching film to tell because they're not physically out there. 
And I think that's kind of what he's getting at. And I'm a guy who's a journalism major, so I'm, I'm for journalists. I'm for people who want to investigate the game, study the game, learn more about the game. But there's just that one factor that plays a different type of role because we're we're out there in the grind. We're in practice. We're playing against guys. And, and that's the only difference between us and, and the bloggers and the people who are, are journalists is that we play it. And we know who's real, we know who's not. And at times, the, the the analytics and the numbers can tell a different story based on a situation or a system. No, I think one of the best case studies for what you're describing is like Jay Crowder, right? Like in Boston, Jay Crowder is just off the charts analytically. He goes to Cleveland, his role changes. All of a sudden, he everyone's saying he's a bum, he can't play anymore. He goes to Utah. What do you know? He's like a pretty valuable contributor there. It's like he had three seasons in in 12 months, and you know you could have completely different uh, opinions of his game based on all of those stops. Who are some of the players, real quick, that you think get maybe overlooked or underrated because of some of these phenomenons? Maybe guys who catch too much heat for not being, you know, quote unquote, analytic enough, or just guys who, when you're in the film room kind of studying, you're thinking, man, that guy can really play. He doesn't get enough love. Yeah, I think there's a lot of players in the league who can hoop. And situational based on when they come out and have their, have their breakout year, like Victor Oladipo. You know, he was traded from Orlando. He was in OKC. His role was different on all those teams. You know, they had him in more of a standstill spot-up role where he's playing off the ball. He's not able to dominate the ball and, and, and be himself. And then he goes to Indiana, and he's a completely different player based on freedom, based on the system and the empowerment. Obviously, he put in work in the summertime. He's progressed and got better each year. But uh, it's just all about being empowered. And I think there's a lot of players in the league. You look at Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton is a very, very good player. He's able to score in a variety of ways. He's efficient. He shoots a lot of mid-range shots, so the analytics may not always be in his favor. But he can hoop. You look at Jamal Crawford, he can hoop. You look at Lou Williams, who in his system, the way he comes off the bench, sometimes he starts. But everybody that's real in the NBA and is honest with himself knows that Lou can hoop. Whether he wins six-man of the year or not, whether he comes off the bench or not, he's been about a bucket since he's been in the league. And I know that's improper English, but that's just a fact, <laughs> that's just a, a fact that it matters. <laughs> you look at some other guys around the league on other teams. Uh, let me see here. Let me find uh, someone who's who's nice that just doesn't really get talked about. Hmm. Well, hey, as you think, I just want to point out, I did not pay you to say Chris Middleton's name. You know, I'm like the vice president of the Chris Middleton's underrated <laughs> fan club. You know, I'm always out there kind of riding for him. I feel like he gets overlooked. I mean, he was just a killer in the playoffs. It, that was the great shame. You know, obviously not getting to see Giannis advance in the playoffs was tough, but I thought the great shame... And them not being able to pull out that game seven against Boston was that next round would have been such a nice just showcase for people to kind of get a, a taste of what he's able to do. And um, instead, he kind of flies under the radar. But who else you got for me? I was just brainstorming. Give me some teams and then I'll tell you players who are underrated. I need some teams. Well, who are some of the yeah? How about some of the guys who when you have to guard them, like in the Western Conference nightly basis, like some guys who really like, you know, you've got to make sure you're locked in defensively when, you, when you're facing off against them. Yeah, I think guys who can shoot and dribble or any combination of those things is, is tough. And there's only a few amount of players who can do it consistently. You look at a guy like J.J. Reddick. Obviously, when he was playing with the Clippers, he had a lot of pin downs. He had a lot of different ways to where he was creating, generating offense, but he had some of the best screeners in the NBA. You put him on another team because of his ability to run and understand the angles, he still is able to, to be an efficient scorer and shooter. So guys like him who move around constantly or running around are hard to guard. Clay Thompson, he runs around a lot, obviously. He gets credited at times, and then he gets discredited at times based on his role and what he's doing. But 
I think he would be good on his own team as well because he can shoot. He doesn't he doesn't waste a lot of motion. He doesn't need a lot of dribbles to create offense. And based on his ability to knock down shots, that shows you that that can translate anywhere. So guys that can shoot or move around and to generate offense are, are able to have success. Like Marco Bellinelli, he moves around a lot. He's he's traveled um, to different teams and has had success on all those teams. Jamal Crawford, who scores in a different way, you know, off the dribble, he's able to shoot a lot of mid-range shots, which is the analytics nightmare. He scored 50 on three different teams. So that just shows you these guys can, can just go. <laughs> They're able to get buckets. It doesn't matter if you put them in Antarctica or if you put them in Compton or if you send them to the Bronx or, or Dykeman or you send them to Canton, Ohio, and they can play at one of our rec centers. They're going to get buckets because of the way they play and how it translates to each team. So there's not a lot of guys. I'll give you a handful of guys who are known and some guys who aren't known to where they're going to be good players or already are good players for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, Clay saved Golden State's season again this year with the the big three-point explosion in the playoffs. Bellinelli was huge in the first round uh, against Miami. Some really, really big shots. Um, I'm going to get you out on this note. So every year I have the unenviable task of trying to put together the SI top 100 rankings list. And I'm pretty sure you've probably taken some shots at us over the years. A lot of players have, you know, it's, it's a really thankless task with a lot of criticism. Uh, but when when we do it, we try to rank the guys in a vacuum. So it was sort of like you were saying earlier with the KD comments, like who can has those transferable skills who will work on any team. I'm interested in your top five ranked one to five for the top 100 of 2019. So, you know, take in mind, you know, these guys are going to be a year older. We're trying to rank them for the entire season. And we take into account stuff like health, you know, age, uh, postseason performance, uh, just to kind of set the framework. So last year we had LeBron one, KD two, uh, Steph Curry three, Kawhi Leonard four. Obviously that didn't quite work out with his season. And then five was James Harden. So if, if you had to do your top five in order for the 2019 top 100, uh, who would you have? I'd go with Bron, Bron 1A, KD 1B. So that does that count as that's two players, one slot. <laughs> so I give, I go yeah. 1A, 1B. That, that's fine. I go 1A, 1B. And then this is when it gets interesting because you could go Steph or you could go AD. But having gotten swept by the Pelicans, I put AD in that top four. So you could either put him three or four just based on his versatility. He's a nightmare at the five because he's too quick for fives. And at the four, he's too strong. He can still post up. He's got the floater. He's got a little bit of everything. So I put him in that top four range. And then you go... Based on health, obviously you'll go Steph or James. You could, you could intermingle, flip them any way you'd like in terms of you know the four and the five spot. And then the sleeper pick is is whether you choose another guard or if you go if you go what Russell Westbrook. You could go Russell or you could go. I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, yeah, well, I, we've had Russ, we've had Chris Paul in that. Oh, Giannis has been in that range. And the other, I think, guy who might be cracking up there pretty soon would be Joel Embiid, don't you think? Yeah, I think he's getting there, but I don't think he's better than AD yet. And I think it's hard for you to put him in front of Steph, James. I think him and – I think you could, you could maybe go Giannis top five, but I don't have a list in front of me, so it's hard to really give you five players. But it's for sure Bron, KD, and then the rest of the NBA. Yeah, so that's the big question for us this year will be – do we have the guts to move KD past Braun? I'm telling you right now, I don't think I'm going to have the guts to do it. I don't want to spoil our list, but that's sort of like the big question because you try to project it out 12 months forward, which isn't easy. 
you know, CJ, thank you so much for your time, your candor, your honesty, and your reflection on all sorts of different uh, uh, topics. Do you want to go ahead and plug your podcast real quick? Yeah, yeah. Shout out to all the listeners out there who are tuning in the podcast uh, all across the country. I like pull up 13 weeks ago with my co-host Jordan Schultz. We talked about a variety of topics, the NBA, the agency, books I'm reading. I've been taking questions from Twitter lately, and we continue to have guests from different walks of life. I'm a huge Billions fan, so I had the uh, producer of Billions on the show and look forward to continuing to, to generate a variety of content. So subscribe everywhere to the Pull Up Pod. All right, guys, check CJ out on all the social media networks, too. Be sure to follow up. CJ, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk later. No problem. Thank you. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.